Good morning. First of all, could we take a second and thank the choir? That is as good as it gets. So, well done. Okay. And um, I also want to say I'm glad to be back. Were you all here the first time I spoke? Good. I speak a lot of places once. It's actually great to be back. Um, I want to invite you to reach into your programs and grab out the message outline. It says, Undiluted Jesus Thrive. I'm going to go ahead and grab that out. And uh, while you're getting that out, there's just a couple things I want to say. Everything in me wants to just walk over there and stare at the view. Is anybody else? Okay. Second thing I want to say is this. Um, I have the privilege of being in lots of pastors all over the world. I, mean, I was in Wisconsin last week. I'll be in South Africa and a bunch of places um, in, the next, uh, in, in the near future. And um, whenever I drive onto a church campus, I'm always going, I got one question. I'm going, are the leaders paying attention or not? And I want to say, every time I come here, I am impressed with the quality of leader you have and the caliber of staff you have, um, the fact that you're actually willing to go, well done, young man. So, um, and um, I just think if I lived anywhere near here, this would be where I would go to church. Number one is, I can't hear how great thou art, something like that, anywhere else. And the second thing is this, your church is well led, and well-loved. And that is a very good combination. And the other thing I want to say is this, you all have the guts. Most pastors do not have enough courage to shut a church campus down for how long is it going to be? Two years. Two years, okay? I think a year and a half, but two years, okay? To actually go somewhere else. How many of you are going, this is a hassle? Every hand should be up. This is a hassle, Okay? You know what's cool, though, is this. Somebody has to be the voice for future generations. Somebody's got to have the guts and courage to make decisions now that 50 years, here's what's going to 50 years after you've been in heaven, somebody's going to come up to you in heaven and go, hey, I just wanted to look you all up and thank you. I know you were all like put out and you had to go other places. A year and a half, you're out of your church building. I know it was inconvenient, but here's what I'm going to say. 30 years after you died, 10 years after that, I went to your church and I met Christ in your church and I wanted, I'm coming, I'm finding everybody that was willing to be inconvenienced so 30 years later I could meet Jesus. And most churches don't have enough guts and enough courage to make a move like that. I'm just very impressed. If I lived anywhere near here, this would be where I'm going to church, okay? So I want to say keep it up. Now, that takes care of the introduction Ty wrote for me. Now, the, um, I'm kidding. I'm kidding, okay? Now, to introduce, I got to get moving. To introduce the sermon, I want to ask a quick question. Anybody here been in the hospital in the last two years, like in there for a reason or visiting somebody? Raise your hand in the hospital, Okay. I was in the hospital a while back for the most bizarre thing. Um, uh, a lady calls me and she says, Pastor Ray, I know this is inconvenient. Um, oh, by the way, I don't do hospital visits. We have 18,000 people in our weekend services. And if I start visiting everybody, I don't have any time and I'm playing favorites. But this lady, they're friends of ours. They call me and she goes, can you rush to the hospital, drop whatever you're doing right now and go pray for my husband? And I said, what's up? And she said, he is, um, she said, he woke up in the middle of the night. This is a young 40-year-old stud guy. I mean, he's just a young, good-looking guy. And his heart's rapid fight. His heart was beating triple time. Like, and it won't go back down. And they brought him in, gave him some stuff. None of that worked. So it's now like 11 o'clock in the morning, and they have him in, they have him in uh, the um, emergency area, and then they moved him into an intensive care, and they're getting ready, and they're going to shock his heart. 
And when you shock somebody's heart, they hope it comes back on at the normal beat, kind of like a heart reset. And so she goes, the problem is this. She goes, the nurse is there, the doctor's there. He's all hooked up, and they're ready to shock his heart. He is afraid when they turn his heart off, it's not coming back on. And so she goes, he will not let them shock his heart until you personally come in and pray for him. I'm going, she goes, so can you get to the hospital now? And I'm like, no, nah, I got a tea time, maybe this afternoon. No, I, I was like, uh, have you ever broken a, have, how, how many of you have ever broken a speed limit in Jesus' name? Okay, you will. The, I go tearing over to this hospital, run through, I, well, you don't want to hear about it. Um, I pull up, I park illegally, I run through the emergency, run right up. I know this hospital well, so I go running in, find him, run into his room, and I run into his room, and the nurse is like, uh, are you the pastor? I guess in that case, you can come in. So I go in, and, you know, Nurse Grouchy lets me in. And then he's, he's there, and his wife's there, and his wife says, thank you for coming. And I look at him. His eyes are huge. He is scared stiff. And his heart's beating, and there's a monitor next to him. And instead of going, deet, 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 it's going, deet, 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 deet. it looks like, you know, and, and so he goes, hey, man, would you please pray for me? He goes, I just know I'm going to die when they shut up. It's not coming back on. I went, no, no. I said, that's not true. I said, here's the deal. I'm going to pray for you. You're going to let the doctor do his thing. And then, so I pray for him. And then just to mess with him, I said, now here's, after I prayed for him, I said, here's what's going to happen. Doctor's going to come in. He's going to shock your heart. And then I'm going to come back in and I'm going to say hi. And uh, he goes, oh, good. So good, good. So just to mess with him a little bit, I winked at him and said, see you on the other side. And... Um, <laughs> And so the nurse looks at me and says, you'll have to leave now. So I start to walk out, and the doctor walks in. He goes to my church. He goes, hey, Pastor Ray, I've got a base on it. So I shake the doctor. He goes, you want to stay? The nurse starts grouchy and frowning. I go, I look at her, and I go, yeah, I want to stay. And so they hook him up. He's got all these IVs and everything. And so they give him this shot to knock him out. And this guy resists everything. The doctor is, I'm going to give you a shot right now and knock you out. He goes, that stuff doesn't work very well. On He's gone. And then they hook him up. I don't know if you've ever seen one of these machines. It looks like the world's largest nuclear car jump battery. And they got that thing over there, and there's this deal on it, and his monitors, and then he's got hooked up to jumper cables all over. And, um, and the doctor turns it on. He's knocked out. The doctor turns it on. I've never seen this before. So I'm kind of fascinated, and that machine starts making noise. And you can tell it's building up all kinds of power to unleash into this guy. And it's like... And just as the doctor's getting ready to push his button, and you know something's coming, this machine making so much noise. The doctor looks at me and goes, hey, do you want to push the red button? <laughs> he asked me. It's always 50-50. Who would push it? Okay, who wouldn't push it? What do you think I did? Oh, are you kidding me? I said, get out of my way. Nurse is frowning. I go over. Nurse is frowning. Doctor's smiling. This guy's knocked out. And he waits and goes, the thing going, for his heart. And then he goes, all right, now. And I push this button, and I hear this out of this machine, and his whole body shakes, and then goes flat, and then flatline. I'm going, oh, crud, I killed one of my church guys. And then it goes, right on beat, and has been on beat ever since. And the reason I'm telling that whole story is I'm not ever doing that again, so don't call me. But um, I walked out of the hospital that day. Watch, watch this. Raise your hand if you've got a problem. Any problem at all. Go ahead, raise your hand. Raise your hand if it's discouraging. Raise your hand if you're sitting next to the source. Of, no, don't do that. 
The... <laughs> it's nice being here for the last time. I, um, the, I walked out of that hospital the other day and I went, wouldn't it be great if every discouraging problem you ever had could be solved just by pushing a simple button? Wouldn't it be great? Every problem you ever had in your marriage, every problem you ever had in your finance, every problem you ever had in this country, wouldn't it be great if you just push a button, I'm gone? Wouldn't it be great if you're going, I'm filled with anxiety, just push a button, hey, I'm fine. I'm racked with doubt, cynicism, I'm deeply discouraged, nobody knows it. Wish I could put in a button and, hey, you know, I'm happy. Wouldn't it be great if we could push a button and we'd have different presidential candidates? And the problem is this. Don't write me a political letter later, okay? Write Ty. Um, the, what's interesting is life isn't that simple, is it? Paul writes this incredible book called Colossians. And in chapter 2, he gives you the thing that will get you through it. And he says this, it is a great verse. Paul has a goal, and it's in verses 6 and 7. He says this. By the way, if you've got a Bible, turn to Colossians 2. If you don't know what it is, go to Genesis, hang a right, go a long, long way, you'll find Colossians, okay? Now, Paul writes chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, and he says this, so then, just as you received Jesus Christ as Lord. So that's first base, that's stage one, but don't stop at first. He goes, continue to live in Him, rooted and built up in him. And then Paul goes, here is a great phrase. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians are going, received Christ, did it. Rooted in him, got the basics. And they never get the next phrase, which is where all the joy comes from, all the strength comes from. And Paul says this, strengthened in the faith. Circle that in your Bible. Strengthen in your faith. That is the theme of Colossians. Strengthen in your faith. Because when you are strong, Paul's goal, if you take notes, write it down. Paul's goal is spiritual strength. Lots of Christians, they receive Christ. They're just spiritually weak and anemic. They wonder, why am I discouraged all the time? Why are my under circumstances instead of on top of Why is all this kind of stuff? And the problem is this, they just don't have spiritual strength. Your number one need and my number one need is to be spiritually stronger because then every other thing gets looks different and gets handled differently, okay? And let me tell you, in our country right now and with your circumstances right now, you cannot afford to be a zero spiritually. Would you agree? And then Paul goes on, and the great thing about the last half of Colossians 2, if you're sitting here going, if you came in here this morning going, I'd like to be spiritually weaker. I'd like to engineer my own spiritual recession. I'd like to be grouchier in the next year. I'd like to worry more, stress out more. I'd like to be far more discouraged, more unhappy, more cynical, filled with more doubt, more dread. I'd like to be more miserable to be around than I am right now. You're here on the right morning. Because all you got to do is do the opposite of what I'm going to cover. But if you're here going, I'd like to be stronger, I'd like to feel better, I'd like to be closer to God, I'd like to have better friendships. I'm, Paul gives you every single thing you need. I'm going to give you the three most important questions you will ever ask. Okay? And here they are. Question number one out of this passage is this. Am I living with rising levels of hope? Am I living with rising levels of hope? And Paul goes on to say this, my purpose 
is that their hearts may be what? Encouraged. Paul's going, my purpose. By the way, you, want, you know this? God does not want you discouraged. Paul says this, my purpose, the purpose of writing this is this, that your hearts would be what? Your hearts would be? Encouraged. Uh, my wife and I have four kids. We had two boys, thought we were done. Then she contracted pregnancy a third time. And I was a seminary professor and a graduate school professor in Chicago. And I came home, and she had snuck off to find out if it was a boy or girl. We were hoping for one or the other. And... Uh, and I meet her at the door, and I go, boy or girl? And she looks at me, and she says, we better go in the back bedroom. I'm thinking, that's how we got her in the first place, but okay. So we go in the back bedroom. She goes, you better sit down. I sit down. She hands me a package. I open it up. It's double mint chewing gum. And I go, she goes, and we have identical now 25-year-old twin daughters. Awesome. And a while back, my daughter Leslie came home, and she said, Dad, the professor assigned us. We have to write a paper on a leader. She said, I picked you. And the professor said, he knows you. He said it was okay. And she goes, so I have 20 questions and you have to answer them all honestly. It's going to take at least an hour and a half. So we have a jacuzzi in the backyard. So we, I said, let's go uh, sit in a hot tub and because I'm going to end up in hot water. May as well start there. Okay. So we go sit down. We talk for two hours. It was a fascinating, honest conversation. And she goes through 20 questions of this leadership questions. Her last question was by far her best question. Her last question, she looked at me, and I'm going to ask you the question. Here it is. What's the most important thing you do? She looked at me and said, as a leader, what's the most important thing you do? As a pastor, our church has 18,000 people in it this weekend. As a pastor, what's the most important thing you do? As the president of Thriving Churches in Anna, what's the mo- as an author, what's the most important thing you do as a pastor, leader, author, all this kind of stuff? You know what? I just, that was the easiest question she asked. And I looked at her, and I actually believe this. If you get this, it will change your life. I looked at her and said, by far, the most important thing I do as a strategic leader is this. And here it is. Make sure I stay encouraged. It's make sure I stay encouraged. And the reason for that is this. If some of you are going, whoa, it sounds too trite for me. Whoa, whoa. It's the deepest thing you could ever... Paul says, my, my prayer is that your hearts may be encouraged. Okay, Why is that a big deal? I looked at my daughter and said, if I am discouraged... I will never be the strategic, visionary, forward-looking thinker God wants me to be. Would you agree? If I'm not encouraged, I never will be the pastor God wants me to be. Would you all agree? Okay. The last thing America needs right now is discouraged Christian leaders. And I got emotional. I looked at her and said, honey, if I'm discouraged, I'll never be the dad you need me to be. And if I'm discouraged, I'll never be the husband mom dreams up. I could be someday. You married guys will get that. And, and I said, by far, the most important thing a person does is make sure they stay encouraged. Does that make sense? Which means I have got to figure out what kind of things strengthen me, what kind of things encourage me, and do more of that. And, and by, the way, good, by the way, good move coming to church, okay? I... This morning in your 8.15 service, and I am not an early morning guy. I don't even believe in God till about noon. The, um, and um, I, my theory is if God wanted us to see the sunrise, he'd have put it later in the day. The, um, and, but I, I, am, I am standing there, and when we're singing How Great Thou Art, tears streaming down my face. 
And you know what? Something happened in my heart. I'm ready for another week just with one song. Have you ever walked in here discouraged and walked out like, wow, my problems haven't changed a bit, but I'm better. That ever happened to you in here? That is the work of the Spirit of God. What's he doing? You're walking out of here with an encouraged heart. You need to connect enough with God so that your heart ends up encouraged. There are people that discourage you, people that encourage you. Hang out with people that encourage you. In other words, strengthen your hearts and every single thing looks different. That makes sense? Question number one is this, am I living with a rising level of hope or not? That is a major question. By the way, if you get that question wrong and you are discouraged, guess what? Your education doesn't matter. Your finances don't matter. Nothing worse than rich, discouraged people, okay? They look happier because they got stuff, but behind closed doors, I live in Granite Bay, California, one of the wealthiest places in the country. Okay? Number one is this, am I living with rising levels of hope? In other words, am I encouraged or not? What do I do to stay there? Number two is this, and this is direct related to hope. Whose voice am I listening to? Whose voice am I listening to? And Paul has a great phrase here. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Circle the word deceptive. Paul's saying, and then he says this, which depends on human tradition and elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Now, what I want to do is this. I want to give you three spiritual additives that will ruin your faith and destroy your joy. And here they are. Number one is this, deceptive philosophy. Deceptive philosophy. And that's where he says this, don't let anybody keep you captive through deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition. In other words, if you're taking notes, by that first one, just write down, that's culture. That's culture, okay? Second one's cults, and the third one's church. But we'll come back to that in a second. Now, here's what I want to say. is He is saying this. He is saying, be careful that you think well. And would you agree with this? Nobody lives well until they first think well. Would you all agree? No, but the starting point for living well is thinking well. The problem in America is this. We are throwing out everything that would cause people to think well. Would you agree? And you know, it's, I mean, it's a mess. And so, for example, for about the last 50 years, America subtly and now overtly has been getting rid of Jesus and Christian values. Would you all agree? Okay. <laughs> for example, last year, Starbucks stopped putting Merry Christmas on coffee cups. They stopped because they don't want the word Christmas on a coffee cup. Christians got all upset. We're going to pick it and boycott Starbucks. I got in front of my church and said, here's how you handle this church. Number one, live with joy. Don't let it bug you. I said, and keep going to Starbucks. You want Merry Christmas on your Starbucks cup? When they ask you what your name is, tell them Merry Christmas. They'll put it right on your cup for you. Personalized. Okay? Get over it. The But what's interesting is this, and I'm going to take you, this is actually going to be fun. I'm going to come down here to do this. Uh, I want to take you on a tour of the last seven decades because you, Bible says this, you reap what you, so if you're going to get rid of Jesus and Christian values, what values do you end up with? What happens to a culture? Okay. So I'm going to put these on the screen and look at them with you. Okay. Was anybody around here for the 1950s? 1950s. Raise your hand. Around the 50s. Oh, wait, wait, raise your hand really high. Okay, you're still alive. You're old. Okay, good. Okay, here we go. In the 1950s, what did we lose? Americans lost innocence. 
Americans lost innocence. We were liberated by cars, rock music, all this kind of stuff. And here's, in the 1950s, hi there, you're on the second row. Um, in the 1950s, Hollywood started shaping American values. That's scary, isn't it? And it has never changed the 1950s. Okay, so number one, in the 1950s, we lost. Okay, that was weak. In the 1950s, we lost innocence. Now, was anybody here for the 60s? <laughs> anybody remember the 60s? Okay, in the 1960s, what do we lose? Here it is. We lost authority. I mean, all those protests. And the phrase, by the way, you weren't around. The phrase for the 1960s was, don't trust anyone over 30. Okay, isn't that unbelievable? So in the 60s, we lost authority. By the way, that's transferred now. Loss of, loss of respect for almost police authority now. It's heartbreaking to have to be a cop these days. The uh, police authority, we lost respect for biblical authority, government authority, any authority. Okay, now... Good luck building the culture without authority. Okay, now, anybody around for the 1970s? It was a whacked out weirdo decade, the me generation, all this kind of stuff. In the 1970s, what did we lose? Americans lost? Love. It was the free love decade. It was the, it was have sex with whatever decade. And one social scientist said this in the 1970s, Americans starving for love settled for sex. And it's never gone back. Would you agree? Now, who was around for the 1980s? Okay, 1980s, probably most of you. He's still not hitting you yet. Um, okay, in the 1980s, what did you lose? Here it is. All sense of style. <laughs> By the way, the guy in the middle there, anybody recognize him? That is Bayside Church. That is my worship leader, a guy named Lincoln Brewster. During his days with Journey. And the guy on the right was Ty Guy with his first truck. No, I'm kidding. Um, the... <laughs> Actually, in the 1980s, what did we lose? Here it is. We lost, Americans lost values. The number one movie for that decade was Wall Street, starring a character named, anybody remember the actor? Michael Douglas playing a character named? Very good. Gordon Gecko. And in that movie, here, that summarized the 80s, greed is good. Watch this. If you don't think this stuff's changing our country, check out American Christians giving tithing records after the 80s. Before the 80s, everybody tithed 10% or more. It was normal. After the 80s, Americans stopped tithing. Americans now tip. They don't tithe. Okay? It's the 80s impacting our churches. Okay? Now, the 1990s rolls around. Who's around for the 90s? Who's around for the 90s? We hit you guys yet? Yeah. Oh, barely. You're around for the 90s? Okay? In the 90s, okay, what do we lose? Americans lost faith that the future would be better than the present. And what's going on now is this. Starting in the 1990s, never happened in the history of America, when they survey teenagers and they say, is your future going to be better than your parents? For all of history, Americans' kids said yes. Now they say no. And the problem is this. When you lose faith in the future, you lose power in the present. Okay? And Americans have lost faith. Now, that's the, the 2000s. The years 2000s started horribly. What do we lose? By the way, here it is. Americans, 2000s, Americans lost security. It started with Y2K. Remember that mess? Okay. Anybody here stockpile any food? This, somebody had it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. We didn't stockpile food. My wife and I had four kids in a minivan. We had enough French fries crammed in the seats to last forever. Um, <laughs> and what was interesting is, in the 2000s, we lost security. It started with Y2K. Then 9-11 hit. And Americans now live 
with more feelings of insecurity than they have in history. And that's tragic. This new decade, the 2010s, anybody around for that? Better be unanimous. The, um, in the 2010s, what have we lost? Here it is. Americans lost hope. Americans lost. Now, if you put all those together, if you put all those together, okay, Americans have lost innocence, authority, love, values, faith, security, and hope. How do you build, by the way, can you build a healthy marriage without innocence, authority, love, values? Can you do that? Just look at the first four. Innocence, authority, love, and values. You lose those four things, and ever since then, every generation of teenagers, they're now sophisticated, but they're not mature. We have set up our culture to brainwash everybody out of those values. Okay? And it's one of the things, we're going to come back to the end of the sermon. You know what I love about this? This is going to be the age of the church. If your church has enough guts to redo this place and go after it and seek to reach the next generations, you know what's going to happen is we're going to have the most, because here's the deal. Everybody need innocence. Would you agree people need innocence? People need authority. Would you agree? Do people need love? Do people need lasting values? Do people need a strong, vibrant faith? Do people need to feel secure and do better when they do? Can anybody live without that hope? No. People need these things, but they can't get them from our culture anymore. Where are they going to turn? You know what's funny? You want innocence, the forgiveness of God. You want authority, the Word of God. You want love, the love of God. You want values, you get that out of the Word of God. You want faith, security. All this stuff happens with a relationship with Jesus Christ being connected to a church. We have the answers everybody is starving for. They're just not sure where to find it yet. Does that make sense? Number one is this. Don't give in to deceptive philosophy. We actually have the answers. Number two is this. Intellectual arrogance will weaken your faith. It'll ruin your faith. Okay? And what he says, Paul says, I tell you that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. Okay? In other words, what do cults do? All cults say, we have a deeper teaching, and we have an extra prophet, and you need to get out of your church into our church. And what's interesting is, they are all missing the boat, which is, it's not about a church. It is about Jesus Christ. Would you all agree? Okay? In other words, it's not about religion. It's about relationship. I had a blast. I got a call a while back from um, a Forbes magazine, the Millionaire magazine, and they said, we want to do an interview with you. And I went, you must have the wrong Ray Johnston. And they said, no. I said, we, you're, you're at Bayside Church, right? I said, yeah. And they said, we want to do an interview with you. What should CEOs of corporations learn from pastors of large churches? And I went, bring it on. So we did, still online, we did a two-hour interview, and their last question was their best question. They said, what's the most important thing you've learned in 10 years? I went, this is awesome. I said this, from, uh, as a leader, here it is. The solution to everything is the right person. That, by the way, that's true. Anything going well in a church, you got the right person in charge, anything that isn't probably wrong. You know, the solution, in the Old Testament, they had the right king, what happened to the nation? It thrived. They had the wrong king, what happened? Went downhill. And then I got to say to Forbes magazine and to all of their readers, I got to say, and by the way, that is the central message of the Bible. The solution to everything, according to Colossians, is not the right religion, not the right ritual. It is the right person, and we Christians have found that in 
Very good. It's not a trick question. We're in church, people. Jesus Christ, okay? In other words, and he says this, man, so don't let anybody pull you away from Jesus or your church. Deceptive lie. And then the third one, I love this because we'll step on some toes. Don't, you can get mad at me and talk to me afterwards. He goes, the third thing that will ruin your faith is this, ceremonial Christianity. Ceremonial Christianity, okay? And I know more Christians in traditional churches where their motto is, as it was in the beginning, it now and ever shall be. And you can't move the flowers on the communion table without getting shot. And, and, the, and, and check this out. He goes, therefore, don't let, I love this, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of things that were to come. The reality, he goes, here's what he's saying. The reality, the only thing that matters is found in Christ. I, I got news for you folks. You read Colossians. Here's the deal. Hymns don't matter. Choirs don't matter. Contemporary music in church doesn't matter. Whether or not you have a cross on the building doesn't matter. Now, what's interesting is this. I prefer all this stuff. I like hymns. I thought that choir killed it. I like crosses on buildings, all that kind of stuff. But when you start making a big deal about that stuff, instead of making a big deal about Jesus, you end up... The guy that discipled me had a great phrase. He said this, spiritual maturity, real maturity, is being strong in beliefs and weak in preferences. Isn't that great? But some Christians, as they get older, as we get older, I should say, our preferences, we start going, well, God likes the music I like. So if the church isn't singing what I like, then God doesn't like our church anymore. Does this make, does this make any sense? I'm probably not stepping on toes here. I don't think you guys are stuck on this stuff. The, um, but what's going on is this. Maturity is being strong in beliefs and weak in preferences. And what he's really saying there is this. Whose voice am I listening to? Am I, and he says this. Don't listen to your culture. Don't listen to cults. And don't listen to opinionated people in the church. There is one voice that matters, and that's Jesus Christ speaking in the Word of God. That makes sense? Okay, question one is, am I living with rising levels of hope? Question two is, whose voice am I listening to? And then I saved the most important one for last star this, would you? And here it is. How big is your God? How big is your God? And I love this. He says, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. Maybe the best way to describe this is this. Anybody here been to uh, I don't know, Disneyland? Okay. Um, anybody here never been to Disneyland? Is there anybody in here? Okay. We should buy you a pass to Disneyland. I think it's about $7,000 a day. Um, <laughs> the uh, Disneyland, of course, was started by a guy named Walt Disney. Okay. Walt Disney had a daughter named Diane Disney. Diane Disney, um, she was amazing. By the way, what time am I supposed to be done? Perfect, good, okay? Diane Disney um, said, my dad, Walt, she wrote a tell-all book, and everybody's like, oh, I'll bet Walt was a corrupt guy, blah, blah. She goes, she wrote this book, and everybody read it and went, he was a great guy. She was like, my dad was a great guy. She goes, he did homework. He was so, he was normal. He did homework with me, played after school, drove me to school, picked me up from school. She goes, he was so normal. On the first day 
of kindergarten. I walked into kindergarten, and she goes, and I had no clue who my father really was until my first day of kindergarten. She said, I sat in the middle of the room. Teacher started over here. Okay, everybody give your name. You know, and the, my name's John Smith, Ty Guy, Hillary Clinton. They go all the way around. And, <laughs> and then it came down, and she said, and so everybody's introduced themselves, and it came to her, and she said, my name's Diane Disney. And the minute she said Diane Disney, the class went crazy. Kids are yelling, and she said, I thought something was wrong. She said, I, I said, is, is, is everybody mad at me? And the teacher said, whoa, whoa, honey, I'm sorry, what was your name again? Diane Disney. Class goes nuts again. She goes, honey, no, no, I don't think people are mad. Let me just, let me just ask you a question. She goes, what's your father's name? My dad's name is Walter. The class goes ballistic, Okay. And she's shook up. She starts to cry and said, is something wrong with me? Should I go home? It's a poor thing. And she goes, no, honey. She goes, the the kids aren't mad at you. They're actually thrilled for you and possibly for themselves. (laughs) She said, honey, she said, your dad is Walt Disney. She said, no, I know. My dad's Walter Disney. She said, no, honey, your dad is Walt Disney. Disney. Dis- Disneyland, that's your dad's. Mickey Mouse Club, that's your dad's. Goofy is your pet. <laughs> she goes, you own Disneyland. That's who your dad is. She goes, I had no idea. She goes, I went home that day. I walked in. My dad was sitting in an oversuff chair reading a newspaper. She goes, I walked up. I snatched the newspaper out of his hand, put my little hands on my little hips, looked right at him and said, you never told me you were Walt Disney. (laughs) She said, here's a great phrase. She said, I walked around in a daze for a month, stunned by who my father was. Shouldn't that be us walking around, not stressed by what America's doing, stressed by my finances, stressed by this, walking around stunned by who our Father is? And Colossians, check this out, Colossians lays this out, the whole last part. Paul goes, you know what? Y'all have been so stressed out. Let me tell you who your Savior is. Check it out. He goes, in Christ, you find purpose, fulfillment, wisdom, knowledge, strength, freedom from your past, future hope, power to change, complete forgiveness. In Christ, you actually meet God. He goes, that's who your Father is, okay? And to wrap this up, what he's really asking, that last question, he is saying this, how big is your God? How many of you raised kids in there? How many raised kids, okay? Um, the, uh, when my kids were little, all of them, we probably did this 300 times, we put, I'd put them on my lap, and I'd look at Mark or Scott or whoever, and I would go, Scott, how big is Scott? Do you ever do this, parents? And the same answer, no matter what city you're in in America, they hold their arms out really wide, and they say, go ahead, on the count of three. They go, one, two, three. So big. 
And they're like, I'm huge, I'm enormous, there's no telling how big I'm going to be. And I actually like that because I did not want my kids growing up feeling like they were insecure or insignificant or small or weak. We want them to think of our kids as so big. Now, Paul in Colossians, the whole last half, is asking one question. How big is your God? And if you don't get anything else this morning, get this. How you feel and the way you live is a consequence of the size of your God, not the politics of our country. How you feel and the way you live is a consequence of the size of your God. And the problem most of us have is this. Our God is way too small. And the problem is this. If I go through the day with a shrunken view of God, I'm going to live stressed out in a constant state of fear and anxiety because everything depends on me. And when I have a need, I'm going to panic instead of pray because I don't have the security of knowing there's an all-powerful God that I actually talk to about this kind of stuff. And here's a, and you're teenagers here or adults that never recovered. When somebody gets mad at you, when somebody gets mad at you or they disapprove of you or somebody on your campus doesn't think you're cool or something like that, you're getting it all twisted in knots because if you don't have the security of knowing that there is a giant God who loves you, cares for you, died for you, walks with you every day, has great plans for you, your future, then what, if you know that, what difference does it make what some puny human being sophomore at a high school campus thinks of you? Who gives a rip? Like the kid that graduated and said, I spent four years worried about what everybody was thinking about me, and then I graduated and realized nobody was thinking about me. What a waste. <laughs> the, um, and to wrap this up, here's what I want to say. When human beings shrink God, they settle for a life of panic instead of prayer. They settle for a life of anxiety instead of adoration. They settle for a life of pettiness instead of living for great purpose. When human beings shrink God, the sign is that they tip, they don't tithe. When human beings shrink God, they live without big faith without big dreams, without compelling vision, and without joy. And here is what you learn when you turn to Colossians 2, or you wake up on Easter Sunday morning, or you wake up at Christmas, or whatever. What you learn is this, whatever you need today, God is bigger. Whatever your weakness, God is stronger. Jesus Christ is alive. He is back from the dead. He has not lost any power, and you are safe this morning in the arms of a fully competent, all-knowing, ever-present, utterly loving God who says to every single one of you, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. I've got you in my hands, so what are you worried about? And you are safe in the hands of a God And you know, you want to describe our God? He is so big. And that, number, number, go back up the line. When you understand how your big, big your God is and you listen to his voice, you will live with rising levels of hope. I am over time. All God's people said, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. God bless you all.